You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Romans 8, uh, this is our third week in Romans 8, and it's provided a, an incredible text for us uh, for Advent to focus on uh, the coming uh, of the Lord. And we're going to continue in Romans 8 today, and so I encourage you to turn there in your Bible if, you, if you're not uh, already there, uh, to, or pull it up on your phone. Uh, uh, today is uh, the shortest day of the year, uh, it's December 21st, and it's also going to be the shortest sermon of the year, all right? Mark it down. Think of it as my Christmas gift to you. We're going to finish Romans 8 together, this, this section of Romans. Uh, last Friday, uh, Friday a week ago, Amy and I went up to Dallas for a funeral. The father of one of our good friends had passed away, and uh, we went up for the funeral. And uh, during this, the service, we learned a lot about this man. Uh, we didn't really know him very well. We know his daughter uh, very well. And uh, it was really interesting. Um, he had been married twice. His, he had divorced his first wife uh, over 30 years ago. Uh, and then he was still married to his second wife at, at the time that he passed away. Uh, but the interesting thing was both of, both of these women were at the funeral uh, on Friday, and, and at the little reception afterwards, uh, they were both greeting people and talking to people. And for some reason, that, just seeing that made me, that was the most reflective moment for me uh, of the entire day. Because I started thinking about the impermanence uh, of relationships, because both of those women had been left by this man who once loved them, right? He left one of them in divorce, and he left the other one uh, in death. And I started thinking about those relationships. I bet, I imagine at the beginnings of those relationships, they felt so permanent. Like they felt like they would last forever. I bet this guy said crazy, head over heels in love things to these women, because I know how dudes are when they're in love, Right? He probably, he probably says stuff like, I'll love you forever. I'll be with you forever. And yet, he, he couldn't keep his promises. He either couldn't or wouldn't, but his promises to love them forever were not kept. And that got me thinking about the shakeability of love. Like the, the, the uncertainty and the imperfection of love. Because we all long for perfect love. We all want to experience perfect love in some ways. We want to be fully known and yet fully accepted. We want to be fully understood and fully satisfied. We want, to, we want a love that will never reject us, never leave us, never forsake us, never let us down. In other words, we want to be loved unconditionally, like a love with no strings attached. But we also, know, we also want to be loved unshakably, a love that will not end. The problem is, as we look around empirical evidence tend to tell, tends to tell us that that kind of love doesn't exist. Like, in the world, it doesn't seem to be that kind of love anywhere. Like, even the most permanent relationships are impermanent. I mean, I love my wife. I, love, I crazy love my wife. I, do, I can't imagine life without her. But one day, either I will bury her or she will bury me, probably. I'm not trying to be morbid. Right, just being true. Like, I love my girls radically. Like, I would t- I'd take a bullet for them right now. Where's the bullet? I love them crazy. But my love for them is so imperfect. I let them down. I disappoint them. 
I hurt their feelings. And besides that, I'm, I can't promise that I'll be around forever because I won't. And so, is there such a thing in the universe as an unbreakable, unshakable, forever kind of love? Like, can I have a relationship that won't be broken up by divorce, by death, by disappointment, by, by disillusionment? Can I have the security of that kind of relationship? And Paul has spent the last four chapters basically describing that kind of relationship. In Romans 5 through 8, where we've spent several weeks together, this wonderful section of Scripture, he's basically said, yeah, that kind of relationship exists. In fact, I want you to see, I want you to look at the last thing he said to us last week. Look at Romans 8 in verse 29, verse 29 and 30. This is, let's know how he describes this relationship. Verse 29, he says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that His Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So Paul describes God's work and our salvation by giving us this chain of five, it's an unbreakable chain of five links. It's been referred to as the golden chain of redemption. You cannot break the chain. And the first link in the chain is this word foreknew. It says that God foreknew us, right? He knew us ahead of time. It doesn't mean that He knew things about us. It goes much deeper than that. It's not like He knew some stuff. He knew some facts about us. It says that He knew us. Now, when the Bible talks about knowing, it's usually talking about intimacy, like a man knows his wife. It's talking about love. It's talking about a love relationship. So, you might be able to say here, when God foreknew us, that God foreloved us, meaning He's always loved us. He's he's loved us from forever past. And then the chain continues there in Romans 8. Those whom he foreloved or foreknew, he predestined to become like Jesus. And those whom he predestined to become like Jesus, he called in in actual real time in their life. He called them to himself. And those whom he called to himself, he also justified, meaning he gave them the status of righteousness. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is talking about the future, but he, he uses a past tense word. He's talking about our future glory because it's so certain, our future is so certain in Christ, he can talk about it like it's in the past, like it's already done. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying God pursued us and secured us before there was ever an us. That's amazing. Like God's love for us started in eternity past. But it moved into history, into space, time, history, real time. That's where God called us. That's where God justified us, intersected our lives. But God's love will continue into eternity future, into glory. It's an eternal love. That's the story of Christmas. God's love moved toward us. God's love came down toward us. That's the trajectory or the direction of the Christmas story. It's also the, it's the trajectory of the gospel. God moving toward us in love. And yet we still struggle to believe it. We think, you know, that's too good to be true. I mean, that's like fairy tale stuff, and I cannot believe that because surely something's going to mess it up. 
Surely something's going to go wrong. It's probably going to be me that goes wrong, and God is going to be sick of it, and he's going to bail on me, and, you know, I'm going to be separated from this love. And so we doubt that there's that kind of relational security that we long for. And so what Paul does at the very end of Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, he starts to use the, the, the highest language he can think of to, to, to con- try to convince us of our security and our relationship with God. Like he wants us to be convinced and strengthened in our faith that God loves us. And so he's going to use this soaring, lofty rhetoric because he wants us to get it. Like, he wants us to feel deep down that God loves us and we're secure in that. And so, essentially, he tells us two things about our security here. I want to take a moment to look at these two things and then rejoice in them uh, because it's Christmas and we should rejoice in things like this. Two things about our security. Here's the first one. We are secure in him because God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what can I add to these wonderful things I've already been talking about? And then Paul's going to launch into this series of five rhetorical questions to which there's no answer to these questions, right? He's just using these questions rhetorically to prove his point because he wants us to get it. And what he's basically going to say is, is there anyone out there in the universe who can do anything at any time, anywhere to shake the security of God's children Uh, whom he loves. Like, is there anything or anyone that can threaten those whom God has foreknown, whom God has predestined, whom God has called, whom God has justified, whom God has glorified? Is there anything? And so he uses these five questions. The first four questions are there in verse 31 through 34, and I want you to look at these first four questions. The first question actually contains the essence of all of these these first four questions. Look at it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, that's the first question, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Second question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Third question, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Fourth question, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If God is for us. Now, I had to pause and think about the ramifications of that a little bit this week. You ought to let that soak in. God is for us. Like, not against us. Like, for us. It says it three times in these verses. In verse 31, it says God is for us. In verse 32, it says God gave his son up for us. In verse 34, it says Jesus is interceding for us. You know what that means? It means God is your friend. It means God is your advocate. It means God stands with you. He's for you. See how Paul uses rhetoric here? The way he phrases the question if God is for us, who can be against us? It makes the question unanswerable, doesn't it? I mean, he could have just asked, who can be against us? And there would have been a ton of answers to the question, right? The world can be against us. Satan, certainly against us. Death is against us. Indwelling sin is against us. We saw that in Romans 7. 
Our family can be against us. Our friends can be against us. We can be against us. But if God is for us, then none of that matters. If God is your friend, it doesn't matter who your enemy is. If God is standing behind you, it doesn't matter what you're facing in front of you, does it? When I was a little kid, I was in the second grade. Some other kids on the street were messing with me one day. And uh, uh, there was three of them, and there was one of me. And they were all older than me, and they were all bigger than me. And one of these big kids took my bike. Yeah, he stole my bike from me. And there was this big hill that went down into the woods, and it bottomed out in this creek bed. And there's water running through this creek. He took my bike, and he rolled it down the hill, and the bike went all the way down the hill, and it's just laying there in the creek. I am so mad, and I'm just crying, I'm screaming, I'm like, and I'm bowing up on these guys that are bigger than me, and I'm like, go get my bike, go get my bike. And all of a sudden, to my surprise, one of the biggest of the guys went down to the creek and brought my bike to me. And I'm like, that's right. You're going to do what I say. But I noticed the kids were looking past me, and I turned around, and standing about 20 yards behind me was my dad had my back. You know, if my dad was for me, it didn't matter who's against me. Through the years, uh, I've always known my dad is for me, right? In all kinds of ways. Usually in little ways, but the, the, the culmination of them all makes me know that my dad is for me. The way he checks in on me, the way he gives to me, the way he loves my family, the way he's, he, he cares about what I do and who I am. I mean, I'll get voicemails from him. I got one just a couple of weeks ago like this. Todd, dad here, wanted you to know that mom and I listened to your last sermon on Romans this morning. Wanted you to know that's the best sermon on Romans I've ever heard. You know, give me some reasons. Now, I know that's not true. <laughs> unless, he, unless he hasn't heard very many sermons on Romans. <laughs> but you know what I know is true? I know my dad is for me, and that makes all the difference. Even as a 46-year-old man, that makes all the difference. This amazing power in someone being for us. And if that person that's for us is God, that's life-changing. Check out one of the ways he's for us here in verse 33 and 34. He switches to kind of some legal courtroom-type language. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Crickets? No answer to that question. God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? Crickets. Crickets. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who is at the right hand of God. More than that, who indeed is interceding for us. It's courtroom language. The world, the flesh, the devil, they're hurling accusations at us bringing charges against us, pointing out our faults, pointing out our sins, trying to condemn us. And yet Paul says, hold up, no, no, no. You have an advocate, you have a powerful defense attorney in your corner. Who is it? It's the crucified, risen, ascended Son of God, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, which is a position of power, rule, royalty, honor. So the, the God who sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning with God on high, is your defense attorney. And what does it say he's doing in verse 34? Interceding for you. He is hammering away 
in the courtroom. No, my client is, must be cleared of all his charges because I paid for my client's sins already. I've got five wounds to show it, to show for it and prove it. You must declare my client innocent because I took his guilt upon myself. Therefore, he is innocent, innocent, innocent. And if the judge is for us, who can condemn us? No one. Now, if you're like me, I imagine uh, that the person uh, most likely to condemn you is you. (laughs) You think, well, I blew it again. I'm terrible. Can't believe I did that again. You know, God's not going to hang around with the likes of me for very much longer. He's probably already bailed on me. And to that, Paul says, no, God is for you. Who can stand against you? Not even you can stand against you. See, we are secure in a relationship with God because God is for us. We we need to be convinced of that. But that's not all. There's one other thing that Paul says here about our security. He says we're also secure in our relationship with God because God loves us. We've been talking about it all afternoon. God loves us. Nothing can ever change this. Nothing can ever make it go away because it's not, a, it's not a love like we've ever known in the world. Now, we come to verse 35, and, and this, in, in verse 35, you have Paul's fifth rhetorical question. And it's like Paul is taking, he's going to take us to the mountaintop that we might get a glimpse of the security of, uh, that we have in our relationship with God. He's going to give us a God's eye view of God's love. Now, look at verse 35. Here's the fifth question. I love this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. So simple. Like, who can divorce you from God? Who can cut you off from God's love? Like, who can reverse the union that you have with Jesus such that the Spirit of God no longer dwells within you? Who can do that? And the answer is no one. Nobody. But for the sake of argument, Paul gives us uh, some potential threats to our relationship with God, even though he thinks they're silly because nothing can separate us from God's love. But he gives these potential threats or separators in verse 35. So look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or trouble, will that separate us? No. How about distress? No. No. A persecution, surely persecution was separated from God's love. Nope. Famine, like not having enough to eat? No. Nakedness, exposure? No. Danger? No. How about the sword? Surely if someone kills me, then I might be separated from God's love. No. Not according to this. You see the invincibility that we have in our relationship with Christ. Like, you can take away my safety, my freedom, my comfort, my shelter, my food, my clothes, my, dig- my dignity. You can even take away my life, but you cannot take away God's love from me. Now, is Paul saying that life won't be hard if we follow Jesus? No, he's actually saying life will be hard if we follow Jesus, because life is difficult. Like, life can be brutal, And belief in Jesus doesn't magically take away your exposure to the potential brutality in life. In fact, following Jesus might introduce trouble 
and difficulty into your life, which is actually not a new thing in the people of God. Paul's not surprised by that at all. And he actually quotes a psalm here. Look at verse 36. He quotes uh, from Psalm 44. He says, As it is written, For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So in Psalm 44, which is what this is from, God's people are crying out to Him because they are, they're suffering. They're being persecuted. Not because they've turned away from God. Not because they've forgotten God. They're worshiping the one true God. They are suffering because, because they're being loyal to the one true God. Because they're being faithful to the one true God. They said, we're suffering for your name's sake. We're being killed. We're being slaughtered like sheep out here. And it's possible, I think, at times for us in life, to feel like that too. When life gets hard, when life gets incredibly difficult, we think, God, I'm dying here. I'm dying here. And there are Christians around the world that are literally dying like sheep for what they believe. But check out this promise in verse 37. In spite of all that, check out this promise. It's really interesting. The sheep who are being slaughtered become the conquerors. <laughs> I love the image. The sheep become the conquerors. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. And I think Paul invents a word here uh, because it's the only time in the Bible that this word is used, more than conquerors. Uh, we translate it into three words. It's actually just one word in the original, more than conquerors. And it's a combination. Paul puts two words that we would recognize in English together uh, to, to make this word. He puts the word hyper together and the word Nike together, like the tennis shoes, right? Or you got your Nikes on, or as my mom calls it, your Nikes. I don't know why she can never get that right. But uh, hyper Nike. Hyper, of course, means over and above, in excess, Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. So what Paul is saying here is in all these difficult things, horrible things that life can bring your way, you are hyper-victorious, right? You are Nike to the max, right? You overwhelmingly are victorious. You don't just win by a nose. You win by two laps in all of these things. And how does it happen? Through, it says in verse 37, through the one who loved us through the one who suffered for us and then overcame that suffering in his resurrection. See, our sufferings can never separate us from God because we are joined to the the conqueror. We are joined to the one who overcame suffering once and for all. Nothing can separate us. Anything and everything that comes our way, we can handle because of the love of God. Now, Is Paul saying, hey, God loves you, so just put on a smiley face and pretend that life's not so bad? You know, following Jesus is just bunnies and puppies and hot chocolate and journaling, right? That's all following Jesus. Is that what Paul's saying? No, he's not giving us a syrupy, saccharine view of the love of God here that ignores the difficulties of life. Because the bad things in life are truly bad. They're not just the the illusion of bad, they're really bad. Cancer is bad. Poverty is bad. Injustice and racism, those things are bad. Death is bad. 
And the love of God doesn't give us this little vaccination so that we're now immune to the bad things in the world or or somehow safe from the bad things in the world. No, the love of God actually becomes the pathway through those things. Like in the love of God, we can walk through anything and everything that comes our way in, in life because we know that God loves us and God's love ultimately wins. Nothing can separate us from that. And Paul finishes with a flourish in verse 38 and 39. Look at verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I am sure, I am convinced, I am so certain, I'm so confident, you can't talk me out of it. And then he begins to scour the universe one last time to see, is there anyone, any or anything, anywhere that can somehow separate God's people from his love? And look how comprehensive the list is that he gives. He's like, can death or life separate you from the love of God? The answer is no. Well, no, nothing existential can separate you from Nothing that has to do with your human existence, whether it's in your life or in your death, can't separate you. What about angels or rulers or powers? No. Nothing supernatural, nothing superhuman, no angel, no demon, no one that has any kind of power anywhere in the universe can separate you from the love of God. Well, what about, what about things present or things to come? Paul's like, no, nothing temporal, nothing, n- nothing temporal at all that has to do with time. Nothing in this present time, nothing in the future time, nothing that you ever do or that anyone ever does to you can separate you. All right, well, what about height? What about depth? That can, can't that do it? And Paul's like, no, nothing spatial, nothing dimensional can separate you. From, you can go to the highest of heavens or the lowest of hells, but nothing can rip you out of the love of God. And just in case he left anything out, he, he has this little phrase, nor anything else, and <laughs> I love the inclusive, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. In other words, there's nothing and no one anywhere in all the universe in God's creation that can separate you from God's love. Not even you. Not even your own choices. Not even your own sin. If you are in Christ, you can't separate yourself from God's love. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that a lot. Scotty Smith, who's a pastor in Tennessee, he tweeted this a couple of days ago, and I needed to hear this. This is what he tweeted. He said, Your most irritated, impatient, uncaring self didn't separate you from God's love today. It made you a target of His love. Because God's love pursues irritated, impatient, uncaring people because God's love pursues sinners that's the story of Christmas through Jesus God has you securely in his grip of love like he is for you and he loves you he won't die on you he won't divorce you he won't disappoint you you can count on Jesus's love his unbreakable unshakable forever love And that kind of love is actually only found in one place. You know where it's found? It's the last five words in our text today. It's found in Christ Jesus 
our Lord, our ruler, our master, our king. Like, do you believe in Jesus as king? Do you believe the baby who was born on Christmas came not only to die, not only to raise from the dead, but to rule as king? Have you embraced Jesus as ruler, Lord, king, and in so doing, begun to experience God's unshakable love? Did you know that his love for you is a gift simply to be received by faith? You simply receive it like you would receive a Christmas gift by faith, and once you receive it, it can't ever, ever be taken away from you, ever, ever, never, by anyone, nowhere, at any time. It can never be taken away from you. God loves you. It's wonderful news. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.